I'm Daniel Mark James, and you're listening to Pod Academy. I'm in the Calder Theatre Bookshop in London. It couldn't be better located to evoke Britain's theatrical heritage, situated as it is on the cut, alongside the Old Vic and the Young Vic. Looking at the bookshop's selection, I can see plays from some of the most distinguished British playwrights of recent years. Here's David Gregg, Sarah Kane, Dennis Kelly, Mark Ravenhill. What all these writers have in common is that they all study drama at the university level. But drama at the university is a recent innovation. Many of Britain's most brilliant playwrights have been autodidacts. Tom Stoppard, George Bernard Shaw, William Shakespeare. So why study drama? I'm in the downstairs rehearsal space of the Calder Theatre Bookshop. This is a place where writers and performers go to make plays come alive. But how far can the inscrutable, mysterious act of playwriting be taught in an academic environment? What is the role of drama in the university? To talk about these topics, I'm joined by Dan Rebellato, Professor of Contemporary Theatre at Royal Holloway, author of numerous stage and radio plays, and of several books, most notably 1956 and all that, The Making of Modern British Theatre. Professor Rebellato, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Um, So before we start to uh, unpack the broader questions, I was wondering whether you could outline for us a kind of potted history of uh, drama as an academic discipline in the British University. Yes, well, drama really... There are lots of examples, of course, of theatre being made in universities, and that goes back centuries. But drama as an academic discipline really starts in the late 1940s at the University of Bristol. Uh, Oxford University, during the war, um, set up a commission to see whether drama was a suitable subject for universities. And they, um, it was a kind of very ramshackle affair. They, um, they booked the wrong flights, and they lost their luggage, and uh, they ended up with half the amount of time they were supposed to have. And they recommended that you shouldn't do drama at university. But the University of Bristol decided that it was a good subject. And that was the first degree. I think that started in about 1947, 1948, something like that. And the big waves of expansion followed from there. Manchester, Hull was quite early, but the 1970s saw a lot of expansion and the 1990s saw another big wave of expansion as well. But what's interesting is that... um... Drama as an academic course outside of English took some time to be accepted. I mean, even at Bristol, it took them 21 years for drama to be a full honours degree. Um, And you mentioned that there was the commission at Oxford, and uh, Oxford and Cambridge stopped short of having full honours drama courses. Um, So where do you think that this lack of acceptance comes from? Well, I think there are a lot of things that are... A lot of things that I think are interesting about theatre are the reasons why it can be sometimes quite a difficult subject in the academy because um, it's neither purely literary nor is it um, purely a live um, uh, experience. It's a kind of mixture of of the two. Um, I think that in academic terms, of course, there are certain kinds of theatre that are, in a sense, purely live and not still literary. But but also I think um, there's a sense in which... um, Theatre is clearly a collection of different crafts and skills because you have scenic designers and you have actors and you have directors and you have writers and composers and so on and so on. Um, And that maps on in the academy into the fact that it's a very interdisciplinary subject. So in order to, I guess, to fully, if you could ever fully understand theatre, you would have to be a bit of a linguist, a bit of a philosopher, a bit of a psychologist, a bit of an archaeologist, and, and, and so on and so on and so on. Um, and then the question 
is left if you took those things away is there anything distinctive intellectually distinctive about theatre studies in itself and I, I suppose that's the ongoing project of 60 or 70 years of theatre studies in the academy Okay, I mean you mentioned theatre as uh, interdisciplinary and I was wondering since the national curriculum uh, in the late 1980s that promoted a kind of compartmentalisation in the school curriculum um, more subject centres, whereas before theatre and education programmes would be the stimulus for lots of works in other subjects. I mean, do you think, do you find that this has had ramifications in the university? That's a very interesting question. I mean, it's had ramifications in the sense that there was a much clearer path through school to drama department, to, to drama at a university. And so uh, drama expanded massively in the 1990s. So there's a very direct causal link. If the question is whether that created a kind of specialisation that actually started to exclude um, other things, I tend not to find that. It may just be the students that we get at Royal Holloway, of course, but uh, we get a quite a broad range of different things that they've done and different interests that they have, uh, and those tend to get brought into the, the room quite a lot. So, no, I don't, I don't find compartmentalisation a problem. When it comes to creative writing, there's a persistent worry that an academic environment can be didactic or inhibit the conditions necessary for theatrical innovation. I mean, what, what steps do you take to create the right climate for your students to be creative? I think it can be, um, it can be inhibiting, absolutely can be inhibiting, and partly it can be inhibiting... Well, I think there are two reasons why it can be particularly inhibiting. One is, of course, I think it's really hard if you're reading plays by Shakespeare... Ibsen, Chekhov, Pinter, Carol Churchill, to then think you can possibly pick up a pen or get sit at your typewriter and and come up with something because you 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 have these these icons of of, of dramatic literature um, to compare yourself to, and that's never helpful. The other thing I think is that there are certain points in the making of a play where it's kind of important not to do certain types of thinking. And uh, because academic degrees, of course, favour lots and lots of cognitive processes and developing those cognitive processes to a very high level, it is possible that some students studying playwriting fall into that trap of overthinking something, whereas actually they need to pursue certain kinds of intuition uh, in, a, in a not particularly well, not not particularly rational way. One example that comes to mind for me about kind of the contradictions of uh, studying playwriting at university is Sarah Kane, uh, in that, you know, when she talked about her experience at Birmingham, she would say that the course nearly destroyed her as a writer. She found the atmosphere inhibiting. But on the other hand, you know, the first two scenes of Blasted were performed at, right. uh, at Birmingham. And, uh, you know, it was really that which led to its coming to the royal court. Yes, I mean, you know, Sarah was quite uh, was was a, a nonconformist character, and almost any situation she was in, she would have probably found quite confining. I think when you look at Blasted, what is interesting is that instead she's enacting her problem with the kind of teaching she was getting at the MA in Birmingham, in that it starts as a very very well carpentered and well constructed box set naturalist play um, and no doubt she used a lot of the skills that were taught 
to her and developed in her at Birmingham in order to construct that very plausible, well-constructed thing. And then she blows it up. And the blowing up is both a comment about the violence of the world, but it's also a comment about theatrical structure. And it's her saying goodbye to ever doing that kind of box set naturalism again. So I think it's a play that's, that actually learns quite a lot from that, that Birmingham experience and is in dialogue with it. On top of the growth of drama departments and universities, there's also been the growth in the last few decades of uh, writing infrastructure at mainstream and fringe theatres, you know, young writers' programmes, uh, playwriting groups. I mean, what can you get from a course in drama that you can't get from these programmes? Um, they're different sorts of thing, really. Uh, I mean, I think you... I mean, let me, let me say, I don't think that an MA in playwriting is essential to becoming a playwright. I didn't do an MA in playwriting, um, for example. Um, but what I think it does give you is both you get the kind of uh, the intensive training and you're made to think through certain things that it's very easy as a playwright to sort of skip, as it were. You just fumble your way towards understanding scene construction or how to deploy time and space in a play or what character might be or different kinds of dialogue. And, you know, trial and error is a perfectly good system in that, but uh, but an MA gives you a certain kind of space in order to think about that. The other thing is that by giving, by forcing a kind of space in your life, I think it also, it suspends some of the other things you might be doing. So in other words, making that commitment to do an MA also means saying, I'm going to spend one or two years committing myself to the project of writing a play. Um, and you pay a certain amount of money that gives you a huge impetus to complete doing that which I think if you just turn up to a writer's group it's much easier to kind of drift from the path he says sounding rather religious but to, to, to you know to give it up it's it's always I, mean, I say this to my students quite often there's nothing easier in the world than not to write a play there does seem to be uh, a cold this is especially in the uh, in playwriting groups of the young writer often their age limits 18 to 25 do you think that there is a, a, a theatrical bias in institutions against the kind of writer who discovers playwriting in later life? Yeah, uh, I do. Um, I mean, it changes throughout time, doesn't it? But, you know, certainly the last few years, I think perhaps since the rise of uh, Polly Stenham and uh, uh, Anya Rice as well, to some extent... Um, Nick Payne, um, who were all discovered very, very young. Um, there is, there's been that thing that maybe that's the most exciting thing we can do now is to find incredibly young playwrights and be the first one to spot them. I mean, I think that will probably pass in a sense. You know, these fashions tend to pass. Um, but you're right. I do. I think it is quite strange when you have competitions that have that kind of age limit, the 18 to 25 thing which seems on one level kind of oddly discriminatory and you know in most other walks of life you wouldn't be allowed to do that you know I, I think that I, I would reflect on the fact that Ibsen wrote all of his most famous his great prose plays well after the age of 40. What I find interesting is that it seems that the threshold for a young writer is lower than the threshold for a young novelist uh, I would say, granted, it's young novelists under 40, whereas uh, with the world of playwriting, it seems that 25 
or, or thereabouts is the threshold. Um, why do you think that that is? Um, there are certainly there are typical things. Oof, this is going to be a terrible, terrible generalisation. And so, okay, I don't mean what I'm about to say, but there are certain kinds of vigour and energy and roughness that you typically get from a talented but first-time playwright. So, um, so for example, Annie Rice, who's a, who's a playwright I, I really, really like, um, uh, I wouldn't say I think her plays are perfectly formed or kind of elegantly structured or particularly elegantly structured. I think they're quite well-structured, but they're formally not that sophisticated. But the dialogue is completely fantastic. Um, and it's you get that sense of someone who has suddenly found a voice and is now able to kind of just give that in a, in a, in a relatively unrefined way that is actually very exciting. So I think, you know, that sense, that's that kind of playwriting is perhaps something that we feel we want, having, I don't know, maybe gone through a phase of rather sophisticated kinds of playwriting that we may feel is a bit more emotionally dead on some level, I don't know. Since the growth of drama departments, since the growth of uh, these writing infrastructures, I'm wondering if you consider that there's a risk that they kind of create telltale signs of having been constructed in this environment. I mean, I'm thinking of the genre known as, uh, known as new writing. You've got things that you recognise, kind of mysterious past event, uh, you know, a speaker addressing an unknown interlocutor, and sometimes it can feel workshopped. Do you, do you often find that there's a risk of this? I think that's, uh, that's a huge risk. I think anyone who runs any kind of writer's group or development programme or MA in playwriting needs to be as aware of that as possible. Obviously, you have your own preferences, the kind of things that you find most interesting in plays. But, you know, same as I think with a theatre critic, a good theatre critic needs to be someone who sits down in the theatre and thinks, what is the project that I'm in front of? What are they trying to do? What do they want to do? Um, you can, once I think you understand that, maybe you want to discuss it or criticise it from your own uh, set of perspectives. But certainly with the students that I teach, I try very hard. I don't know that I always succeed in this, but I try very hard to think, what is the play that they want to write? Not the play that I want to write, but the play they want to write. And to try and support them as, as much as possible. I think as well, you're completely right in saying that you do sometimes notice that there are certain types of play that you you go to the theatre and you keep going, why is everybody writing like this at the moment? Um, and I saw this recently, I won't name it, but I saw a play at the Royal Court um, quite recently and thought, oh, wow, this is someone who's just sort of mainlined uh, Mike Bartlett and perhaps Duncan Macmillan, and they've just sort of regurgitated that style in a way that I found kind of... I love those two writers, but I found this kind of deadening because it felt like it was... The, it, more than anything it was trying to say about the world, it was just sort of saying, I'm writing the kind of play we write now. Theatre in educational institutions has traditionally had uh, a social role. Uh, I mean, in 
Uh, groups such as Belgrade Theatre in Coventry had socialist politics. So what, one of Bristol's mission statements, according to its founders, was to tackle social problems created by rapid developments in popular dramatic entertainment. I mean, how do you conceive of theatre's social role in your teaching? Well, this is difficult because I think I have a, I have two rival commitments. Well, one is that I have my own politics and my own view about the way the world is and should be and so on. And, you know, I guess that like a, a lot of humanities academics, you know, I consider myself on the left. Um, but then I also feel a bit like, uh, I say with students' own creative work, uh, in a sense, the point is to have the dialogue and... Um, I, I'm as careful as I can be not to try and force people into certain ways of, of thinking or make it difficult for them to express points of view that are different from mine. Though I suppose secretly, I think that that opening up of dialogue is itself a slightly left-wing thing. So so I eventually I recuperate mm. my liberalism and turn it into something more radical in my head. I was um, thinking about this, in fact, because uh, you've written about theatre as a kind of form of resistance uh, in some ways, and that, that idea is very long-standing. I mean, I say this speaking from a bookshop which is full of Marxist texts and copies of Red Pepper and three Bradley Manning posters, um, but this is kind of to the left of most plays, which a lot of people like David Eldridge have complained kind of betray a wishy-washy Guardian sentiment. Do you find this? Well, I think uh, I would say that the... the, the political resistance that is in a play is not really in its content so much it's not so much in the ideas that well-meaning characters say to each other uh, which I think is um, is actually politically a fairly negligible thing I think it can be very interesting but but in a way I think the most resistant thing about theatre is that it's uh, that it's a sort of pointless activity uh, and that it, it it seems to what well, so does all all art most art escapes the kind of means end utilitarianism that is that is structurally underneath the kind of logic of capitalism. So actually, by saying I'm going to spend two hours doing something pointless, is itself quite an interesting thing. And that of course, I mean, I think in a certain sense, I've got to be very careful how I say this, but I, I would say that uh, university education has an element of this as well. Now, I'm not saying <laughs> university education is is pointless, but I do think that there is that there is uh, a big pressure at the moment, of course, to turn university education into simply a training for industry, whereas that that rather 19th century notion that it, it's about uh, uh, developing a love of knowledge and understanding for their own sake um, it, itself I think is is an attempt to kind of escape that means end uh, logic so I think an education about theatre uh, has that kind of slightly utopian resistant quality to it. What you were saying about that kind of means end conception kind of links in uh, very well to the kind of Maria Miller position this kind of you know, culture as uh, as a commodity, and uh, kind of there are various government reports from the DCMS which say things like uh, you know, creating, uh, giving young people creative skills for the workplace of the future, and that kind of thing. And so you'd feel that uh, a university 
course, is inherently opposed to these positions? I don't think that it's inherently imposed, opposed to those positions. I do think that um, the university tends to be a, an open space in the sense that I, in the sense that I think students don't tend to realise at the time. But when people look back on their university days and say they were the best years of their lives, um, of their life, I think they often mean I hadn't realised how few commitments I had, how much freedom I had <clears throat> of expression, of behaviour, of thought. Um, and it was post-school that's heavily regimented and before paid work which is heavily regimented and in a sense it's that also that opening out of space and of course students work extremely hard and they can be means ends focused in thinking about marks and assessment and all those sorts of things but on the other hand I think most students do get through university with a sense in which they suddenly get inspired by something that they know is probably not going to make them a huge amount of money but they've suddenly found something fascinating about A Winter's Tale um, or the work of the Worcester Group that they just feel they want to explore and it's that moment I think that, that opens something up that's, that's resistant I mean this kind of links in to the role of the imagination and there have been people who've talked about the uh, imagination as a battleground and the theatre as a weapon in this battle uh, I mean how, how far would you agree with Edward Bond that the future depends on the state of our imagination and theatre plays a the key role in that yeah I do I mean I th- you know I don't think just the theatre I think um, any kind of creative uh, activity plays a part in that um, because uh, I suppose if you think that one of the ways that that capitalism works is to constantly find new experiences, events of of all kinds to turn into a commodity. The process of turning it into a commodity will streamline it in a certain way and make it into a a means-end experience. The imagination is of course something that is used in advertising and, and you know in all sorts of I mean imagination is used in creating any kind of innovative new project uh, product but um, I think it is something that it, it's it's very hard to think of it as being completely colonized um, where Edward Bond is coming from he's I mean he's actually somebody who's got very who got very interested in Kant and I think Immanuel Kant's sense of the imagination as something um, a priori free is is something that unfashionably I kind of go along with. Um, today's young people, they have access to instant social networks, mediatised images, new sources of information. What would you say is the role of the theatre maker in this environment and how can they compete better with these forms? My first... Um, response to that would be to counsel complacency because um, the a statistic I'm very fond of of uh, quoting is that uh, between I think the high point of cinema going in this country which is I think about 1948 to the low point which was 1982-83 um, the cinema lost something like 95% of its audience okay and um, 
it's recovered a little bit, but not very much. So it's now probably only lost by 85 to 90% of its audience. That is, by any stretch of the imagination, a, a staggering statistic. Now, the theatre, which has always been a kind of minority pursuit, um, has basically flatlined in a good way at around 3 or 4% of the population who regularly go to the theatre um, for over 100 years. It's been completely constant. In other words, it has been relatively unchanged by the advent of radio, of television, of cinema going, of video at home, and now of, of computer games and social media and those sorts of things. So in, in that sense, I kind of don't think it needs to worry. The, the historical precedent seems to be it just satisfies a different sort of yearning in people. Um, the, the other approach to that would be to say is that uh, I don't think the theatre needs to think of itself as competing um, with those things. There are, there are certain things that are very theatrical about some forms of social media in the sense that things like um, Twitter, for example, are, are live. You know, they're live experiences. It's really interesting the way that Twitter has seen a modest revival of live television watching because people actually don't want to watch The X Factor the day after because they want to sit with their phone making snarky remarks about The X Factor. And I do this too, so I'm not being, I'm not being snarky about snarkiness. Um, uh, and so they actually... So what Twitter seems to have done is to kind of reignite the liveness of certain kinds of cultural experience. There was a suggestion somebody made, I think it was somebody at the West Yorkshire Playhouse about three years ago, um, made a joke suggestion that there would be Twitter seats at the theatre so that people could live tweet their experience. And they got a load of people saying, this is the most grotesque idea, ruins the experience of theatre. I think those things are, I think that'd be a, that'd be a really interesting idea. I think that'd be a very, very interesting idea. And I, I, I would, I'd quite enjoy live tweeting a theatre experience to some extent um, uh, you know and I've been involved in a couple of projects that have tried to sort of integrate theatre um, and social media in particular did a thing recently well I played Puck for the RSC um, uh, in their most recent production of Midsummer Night's Dream which was basically I posted things online There was a, they did a one-off live real-time performance of Midsummer Night's Dream, and they surrounded it with this massive online hinterland um, in which there were about 50 characters. And I was Puck online, and I tweeted as Puck, or tweeted and uh, Google Plused as Puck for about a month um, earlier this year. And it's very interesting because what you find, and I find this very often on Twitter as well, it is very like writing a play because the character does kind of start taking shape in a way that surprises you and you suddenly hit a seam and uh, the character will take you in a direction you don't expect and you start getting these interesting interactions. Um, so I, I sort of feel that actually the media are much more theatre-like than they were 10, 15 years ago. Thanks very much for talking to us, Professor Vebilato, and you're listening to Pod Academy. Thank you.